Well, good morning. My name's Rick. We're going to look. We're going to look at the what Keith said last week was sort of the high point of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, while you're opening your Bibles or your app, if you would turn to Matthew chapter six, verse nine, we're going to look at nine through fifteen. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Father, I come to you this morning with a sincere request that I just not mess this up by over-speaking. There is such a beauty and simplicity to this passage, this prayer, that as has been said by others, it's probably better to read it than just sit down and think about it. But we won't this morning. We'll try to parse this out because it's my hope that at the end of the morning we'll all want to pray more. We'll be motivated to pray. We'll be will be energized to do the very thing you ask us to do without ceasing. So I pray to that end that you'd bless this time, that your spirit would apply your word to the people of God. And I pray through Christ. Amen. So, talking about the Lord's Prayer, it's kind of a two-edged sword in a way. Just show of hands, and it probably would tell something about your age. How many people actually, I don't know what to do about that, Brad. How many people actually have this memorized? Yeah, good. That's good and bad. <laughs> I mean, because how many times do you get to preach to a, pa a passage that everybody in there has got it memorized? But on the other hand, I think it's worth slowing down and sort of having a group meditation about these verses because we're sort of inured to it. We're sort of numb to it. Uh, I think this is not unlike... It, it, it's supposed to be shocking almost, and it's not unlike, I'm sure everybody can do this too, you know it by memory, if you sit down on a plane and the steward or the stewardess stands up and start their little spiel, should the cabin lose pressure suddenly, the mask, is, you know, you kind of know that, and by the time that he or she are on into their little discourse there, you're half a chapter into your book you bought, you're not listening at all. If the cabin lost pressure, you'd think, golly, what did she say? You know, so it's kind of that way about the Lord's Prayer. We are numb to it, and I'd like to take the time to look at it slowly, sort of. And, you know, for me, this is a passage that I have to say for years and years and years and years. I just said it, probably like maybe you do too. We say it publicly, but on the other hand, at a time I heard somebody teach about this, it completely changed. And it completely changed and energized my prayer life. And that's my prayer that it would do that for us too. So at the, at the end of the time, if you, if you feel less inclined to pray, I've failed miserably here. That's not my intention. I think there's the risk here when you look at it of, as I said in my prayer, you know, forgetting the simplicity of what Jesus said and using this sort of as a formula. If I don't, you know, in a chemical formula, if you don't have every ingredient, the chemical reaction doesn't go forward. That's not like this. This is a form. It's something to inform us. It's something to help us. And there are actually three phrases or words that Jesus uses in this psalm that I think we tend to gloss right over. I'd like to spend the first half of our 
30 minutes just talking about those mostly. And those are going to be, if you look in your bulletin, in fact, by the way, I want to really encourage you to look in your bulletin. I hope you got one because the Lord's Prayer is there in the, in the uh, Good News Translation, which, by the way, is a very accurate, legit, contemporary translation. And I really would hope that you'd take a pencil or a pen and just mark it up. That would be, that would be really great. So we're going to look at the first few, the first couple of verses, which if you divided this up, you could sort of separate it into the introduction and then the first sort of petition, but it's also a declaration. And then only in the second part do you get to the real petitions where he's saying, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're going to look at that in the last half. But the way I think is correct to look at this prayer is sort of the idea of triangulation. You know, I think if you're navigating on the water, one way to do it, if you have line of sight view of things near to you, but you don't exactly know where you are, they use a method called triangulation, where if you've got a compass and you've got a map, you can point to something and you can figure out where it is from where you're standing and you draw a grid line that parallels that. And then you can look at a second point, and then you look at a third point, and when you put those all together, if you draw it on your map, you get a little triangle. And you know that you're pretty close within a few degrees to being exactly where you see on that map in the triangle. It's called triangulation. I think in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus sort of gives us a triangulation. He uses these phrases, his name, or in this case he says your name, his kingdom, and his will. He says, pray your Father or our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And those are three ways that if we use those to put us in the correct position, the rest of the prayer sort of walks out from that. I hope that makes sense at the end of the time because I think this is crucially important to this prayer being all it's supposed to be for us. So let's start with his name. He begins by saying, Our Father, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I want you to notice two things about it. First of all, it's corporate. It doesn't say my Father, it says our Father. I think this is to be a prayer that we pray together. Even if you're alone, you're praying it for the rest of us here in this body. You're praying this for the body of Christ in the world. And he's also talking to a father, which has a lot of overlay to that. It's not that Jews weren't, in some cases, they were informed by the Psalms to pray to God as their father in some cases. However, it was done in an extremely reverential way. But it's to remind you that he's a father in heaven. If you're like me and you had a great father, I don't have any disconnect there thinking about a father who could be revered and yet intimately close to me. He's, to remind, he's reminding us that our Father is in heaven, meaning that's where the power structure is. Heaven is this other parallel realm to where we are, but it's where the power is. It's where everything is really happening, and we're sort of an emanation of that. So we're, that's to whom we're praying. When he says my, his name, he really means his character that his character is to be hallowed. We don't use the word hallowed anymore. Unless you call a battlefield hallowed ground. It's holy, it's separate, it's different, it's special. 
So to say that his name is holy is to say that his character is holy. So what God did continually through the scripture is he revealed himself. That's huge. God is self-revealing. This is very important. If you have conjured up in your mind who you think God is, relieve yourself of that. There is nothing I'm going to say, there is nothing you should take about the character of God outside Scripture. Whatever you and I think of is to some form idolatry. If you want to know who God is, you see his character in the Scripture. It's the way he designed it to be. You think about it. When somebody says to you, well, that catastrophe, that was terrible. No, the God that I, tr that I love would never have done that. Well, I would say to you, well, you tell me about the God. How did you invent that God? Where did you get that information? Because you didn't get it from the Scripture. In the Scriptures, we understand why hard things can happen. It doesn't make it easier necessarily, but we understand that God is God and we're not God. And you want to be sure you're not making God up, and that's the God you're praying to. So when Jesus is saying, holy be your name, he's saying, don't use God's name in vain. You know, we have this really goofed up idea that to say GD, to cuss with that word, that is, that is using the Lord's name in vain. That is a way to use the Lord's name in vain. To use the Lord's name in vain is to nullify his name. It's to make it what it's not. That is really dangerous. That's when you use his name in an unauthorized way. Like if you damn something in his name, you're actually using his name in a way he never authorized you to do that. Well, there are all sorts of ways we can do that. So in prayer, one of the things we have to be informed by is who does God say he is? Well, not to be too nerdy about it, but, you know, if you looked in the whole of Scripture, there are names that come up recurrently where God is revealing himself. And all he's doing is, through his name, he's telling you his character. Like, I mean, this is kind of mundane, but you can think of somebody whose name's Slim, probably skinny. Somebody who's nicknamed Red, probably red hair. Somebody who's, well, you can go from there, okay? I don't want to get into it. I'll step on, step on somebody's toes, Zach. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, God reveals himself through his name. So these are common names that God uses. Elohim is the one where it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So this is an emphasis on God's creativity and his organization, and that he pre-existed, and that he's separate from the universe he created, in a sense. He's not the result of it, and he's a different entity than what he created. So we don't believe in pantheism, we believe in a separate God who creates and organizes. Why is that important? Well, it's important in lots of reasons, especially when you approach him in prayer. If we think, golly, you know, I had this really dear sister in Christ last week who was telling me she's a phenomenal at what she does. She's saying, you know, I feel this kind of tension because I really love my job, and I really, I don't know, maybe I love it too much, you know? And I, and I well, no. God, I mean, you are so in your turn wheel. You are so where God wants you to be. You're actually delighting him in what you're doing because you're organized and you're creative and you're doing this thing God gave you to do. So when you come to prayer and you're praying, you can pray really consistently with what God's saying about himself. He is creative. He's organizing. He moves into a situation. He doesn't, he's not just out here, he's, transcendent, but he's imminent with us. Adonai is the one that, you know, it might be translated Lord or King, like 
the one who's sovereign, the one who's in control, the, the one who's the boss, the one who's the master. That's who the Lord is. So when we're praying, you want to be sure, I want to be sure, I'm not saying, here's some stuff I want you to do. I heard somebody say this week, one of the really great lady Christian writers, said, she said, you know, if I was to be honest about my prayer, it goes like this. Thank you, thank you. Gimme, 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 gimme. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right? Well, that ain't right. I mean, the first thing you want to recognize is, hey, he's sovereign, not me. I was telling some people the other day, I think about this, this is, I'm telling about me, not you, but, you know, I think about, let's take a little goldfish who's sitting inside a castle that's inside a very small fishbowl that's in a very small house in a very small town and maybe in a very small state, in a very small nation, in a very small world, that's in a very large universe, and he thinks he's the king of that castle. You know? I get that way sometimes. Because this is my little deal. Well, no, you're not. And one of the most releasing things in your life is to say, you know, no, I'm not. You're Lord. When we say Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we're saying. You're the boss, I'm not the boss. And that's really an important posture in prayer. And then Jehovah, which is, you know, the Anglo Anglicization, the English version of Yahweh, that means, this is where, the best definition I've heard of this, this is where God is talking, this is used before that, it's used as early as Genesis 3, where he's called the Lord God. Uh, but this is, you know, you think of this really in Exodus chapter 3, where uh, God just appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses goes, whoa, what's going on here? And he says, hey, come here, take your shoes off and stand here. I'm going to send you to my people, who are really your people, and you're going to go tell them that we're walking out of Egypt, and I'm going to establish a special place for you guys, just like I promised your ancestor Abraham. And Moses said, wait, 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 wait. Who are you? Who, you're telling me to do this. Who am I to say to them? What am I supposed to tell them who you are? And he says, my name is I am that I am. Tony Evans does this one really great. Probably everything I'm going to tell you I got from Tony Evans. So He says, this is God saying to Moses, this is really important, Moses. I am who I am. I'm not who you tell me I am. He's separate from us in that sense. He's intimate to us as a father, but he's separate from us. 6,500 times in the scripture, he's called this one, Jehovah, Yahweh. When we come to him, we want to be really careful that we don't take his name in vain. So what would, do we do in prayer? We honor his name. We don't dishonor his name. What do we do in life? We don't dishonor his name. If I'm praying something, and there's a pretty good chance it brings no honor to him, it, in fact, it could dishonor him, in fact, it could be using his name in an unauthorized way, I probably don't want to sign his name on the bottom of that check because it's going to be returned to me. I voided the check because I used it in an illegitimate way, if you see the point. So, really important to use this one area of triangulation. Hey, God is God and I'm not God. He loves me. One of his names is Father. He's intimate with me, but you have to keep that balance there. So that's one part. I'm going to kind of go in reverse order here. The other thing is his will. Well, because he has a character, he also has a will. That makes sense. God's this being, and he, therefore his character compels him or directs his will. He doesn't just sit out there and go, yeah, whatever. 
That's not the way he is. Because he is who he is, he has a will. And the Bible is full of talking about God's will. And the real secret, in some sense, if there's a secret to the Christian life, is God's will is like a giant, huge, flowing river. And it is going to happen. You can count on it. And you're not going to reverse the flow, and I'm not going to reverse the flow, and what he said is going to happen is going to happen. And your best move is to get in the middle of that river. You're not going to swim very far against it. I don't know how strong the Amazon is. I know it's a big river, but apparently the Amazon shoots water out into the ocean 150 miles. That's how hard it's coming. You're not going to change that. That's the way God's will is. You're not going to change it. And his will is all over the place. But here's a great place to go to look at one spot where he makes his overarching will known to us. And this is a, you can see I've just abbreviated this. You should look at both those verses because the 11 talks about us. He made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Christ. That is his will. That is going to happen. I don't care what's going on in the news. I don't care what your professor says or doesn't say. I don't care what anybody says. This is going to happen. This is a basic core belief of ours. And the smartest thing we can do in prayer is go bring it. In fact, comport my will to your will. Line them up. So what do we do with God's will? We do it. It's not enough to get assent to it. It's enough to do it. It requires walking, using your hands, using your mouth. When you go to work, if you've got this big disconnect between your work and God's will, you need to rethink it. In the a passage just beyond this, in Ephesians 2, it says we're his workmanship, every one of you. You're not abstract to him. You're not a social security number. You're his workmanship. You're a crafted thing. He put some things in and he left some things out. And you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You want to get in on that. That's one of my life verses. Because when I don't want to go to work in the morning, I can go, wait a minute. This is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. He's got works for me to do and I want to get in it. I don't want to stand opposed to it. It's valuable to him. So my work becomes an act of worship. It's not a disconnect. That is worship as much as this is. I believe that is true. So what do you do with his will? You do it. So in prayer we go, God, I see your name. I see how you are. And I want to be submitted to that. And I know you have a will. And I want to do that will. But there's another missing part. And I think this will become apparent why I did it this way. And that is... What is, his, what is his method? What is the plan? What is the program? And it's called many things in Scripture, but a thing most prominently called by Jesus is his kingdom. His kingdom is the program. So he's got a character that propels his will or directs his will, and his will formulates a plan, and the plan is the kingdom. So if you want to know what we're supposed to walk in, it's his kingdom plan. Well, what is that? It's God's comprehensive rule over everything. It begins with the individual, and then it carries on to everything else. So let's start with the individual. His individual will for every person in this room is that you personally 
Accept Jesus Christ as your sin carrier. He's going to take your sins onto him so you can have that first step relationship of getting in God's family. If Jesus brings you home to God's home and he says, Father, I brought this guy in, I want to adopt him. And so God says, well, what about his sin? And Jesus said, I paid for his sin. He's not carrying it anymore, I'm carrying it. And so you come in and you say, I want to be like a son. I want to, I want to do the things that are important to you. He's a king. You want to be in his kingdom. The people who would have heard this, they understood king great. Remember when Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate goes out, and he points to Jesus and the crowds out there, and they, he says, oh, here's your king. And the people shout, oh, we have no king but Caesar. Well, that's one of those places where God says, okay, your will be done. You don't want Jesus as your king? Okay, Caesar will be your king and everything that rolls out from that. You don't want to be that. We want God's comprehensive rule in our individual lives. That's what we really want, whether you know that's what you want or not, or I know it, that's what we really want. What does it look like beyond that? It's the individual, but it's the family. Okay, I don't want to step on any toes here, but God's got a plan for how a family's supposed to look. If he wants you in a family, he's got a plan. Guys, it's on you. It is on you. The wife, almost invariably in my experience, is spiritually so supportive of this, and the guy is so spiritually absent because he's working. And when he isn't working, he's playing. It's not the plan. That's not the kingdom plan. That's not the way it's supposed to go. I'm sorry. I'm talking to me too. I got to work. I got to play. But I, this is the one we're supposed to catch as a guy so that your wife and your children can flourish. If you want to see this spelled out in the Old Testament, look in Psalm 128. It goes in this order. Individual, family, and then church. You put a bunch of families together where the husband is doing what he's supposed to do, but we don't do it anymore. You put that family who's the husband's doing it right into a church, and you put a bunch of those together, then you've got a body that reflects his kingdom. His agenda is out there. You're going to affect the school across the street. You're going to affect the neighborhood. You're going to affect where you work. When you go and buy something at Kroger or, or Walmart, the way you attend to the person who's attending to you is going to be different. And your church is going to participate in things. And that's going to affect the community, which is going to affect the nation. We want somebody from somewhere else up in the Northeast to direct what we do. That's not the way it's supposed to work. God wants you as an individual to follow Christ. He wants you as a participant in a family. If you're in a family, you don't have to be, but if you're in a family, the family looks like it, so the church looks like it, so the community looks like it, so the world looks like it. So what are we to do? We're to get with this program. We're to extend his kingdom. Kingdoms of, oh boy, you got to be careful with the word kingdom when you're talking Bible people, okay? Here's one thing you got to know about the kingdom, and, I, even, I, and I'm fuzzy on this, so if I misspeak, we'll have Roman or somebody correct it. But really, so the, the kingdom was predicted in the Old Testament, and, and the more I study the Old Testament, the more I realize how robust that prediction was. But also, when Jesus came, he said the kingdom is near, and then he said the kingdom is here. So in a sense, 
Jesus, this, I believe this is true, Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly, but what happened was he crowned? Yes. But his crown was a different kind of crown. He was crowned, if you were, if you will, on the cross. The bravest thing anybody ever did was take your punishment, take my punishment for our sins, and he took it all, brother. He took it all. He took Hitler's sins. He took Stalin's sin. You name a sin, he took it. He got it all. God did not withhold his wrath from him. And then he was, he died, he gave up his own spirit, and then he was resurrected. That's the coronation. However, the kingdom is still coming. That's why Jesus prayed this. He says, thy kingdom come. This is sort of a declaration. God, I look forward to you bringing your kingdom, and part of what the church does, it extends the kingdom into everywhere we're sent. Every place you go this week, you have the chance to extend the kingdom and how you conduct yourself for Christ. And that's the frame of this prayer. So if you look at it this way, you're well triangulated when I've thought of all those three things. Now, do I sit down and think, gosh, I've got a flat tire. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. No, I, I ask God, will you send AAA to help change my tire? You know, but, but in the frame of the posture of my prayer is I've got his sovereignty in mind. If I'm thinking right, I'm not going to crumble and crash. I'm going to go, okay, you're sovereign. I know it. I know you're accomplishing your will, and I know I'm part of your kingdom, so I can pray in that sense. That's a whole different prayer. Remember, God encourages people to pray. God told his disciples, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a parable, and it's about a lady who had to go to a judge over and over and over and over again, and she had to say, give me justice, because it was her right to get justice as a woman of Israel. And so she persuades the judge by her persistence, and he says, I'm telling you this so that you won't lose heart and you'll always pray. That's Jesus' heart. If you ever forget the heart of God and you think that you're just knocking on brass gates up there and nobody's answering the door, you've got a misconception of who's behind the door. This is a father who wants you to pray. He wants you to hear. He wants to hear from you. It, it doesn't have to be perfect. A lot of times, my grandkids, especially one who's unbelievably talented artist for six. But anyway, our grandkids bring us pictures. I never go, eh, that's not perfect, chunk. You never do that. You go, hey, I'm, I'm putting this in a special drawer. I love this. This is great. It made me look like a pumpkin, but why? You know? God wants you to pray. But once you've got this sort of three parts in mind, then all the other prayers become, they walk out from that. For example, give us this day our daily bread. What's he saying? He's saying, in light of all this, I'm gonna, I've got some needs. I've got some physical needs. I mean, the way you created the body, I've got to eat. Really, in this culture, I, I really need a job. And in this culture, I really probably going to have to have a car. And my car is going to have to have gas. And I'm probably going to have to wear clothes appropriate for my job. Those things you can pray now with power because you're saying, what I'm trying to do is within the confines of your person, within the will that you have within the program you've directed, I want to be part of that. There's some things I need, and here they are. That kind of changes that prayer. I guarantee you that prayer, based on what Jesus said, will be answered. It may not be the way you expect it. It may not be when you expect it, but it will be answered in an appropriate way. 
So give us our daily bread. And forgive us our debts our, as we forgive those who, who have debts to us. So what is he saying there? Well, this does not talk about salvation. We're going to go down to these hard verses in a few minutes here. But this is talking about relationally. This is talking about father, son, daughter, son, daughter, father, really how close you are. You've got to have, well, picture a big family table. This is big, like our family. Let's say we're all at one long table here. God is sitting there. He really wants good relationships between us. He wants to make sure that we, he and, and I, the Father and I, don't have anything where I've sinned and I'm trying to cover it up and not talk to him. He, he doesn't like that. And likewise, he doesn't like it a lot when I have a problem with you and I'm not willing to forgive you. And that's why Jesus told these almost outlandish stories about how somebody could have a debt of $30 million. And he comes and he pleads before the king, and the king says, ah, I'm going to forgive you your debt. He doesn't even say work it off. He says, it's gone. Man, if I owed somebody $30 million, and he said it's gone, I hope that would change me. But what does he do? The guy goes out, he sees some guy he owes him 20 bucks. He says, throw him in jail. He says, stay in jail until he's worked this off. Word got back to the king, and the king said, clearly, you did not understand my heart or what was done for you. We can't have where I don't forgive you and you don't forgive me whatever thing we did to each other or in your past. It may be somebody who's dead, who did something abusive or wrong to you. You've got to give it up. That's how we clear this channel out of having relation with the Father. So we need food, clothing, and shelter, and we need a spiritually clean heart. And then we need spiritual protection. You know, the last thing he says, don't bring us into hard testing and keep us from the evil one. This is all against the background of there is an evil one and there is a parallel kingdom to this and this guy hates Jesus, so if you belong to Jesus, he hates you. That's the evil one. He can't hurt Jesus directly, but he can try to hurt you. The easiest way he can hurt you is if you get out from under this triangle. Then you're, you're out there fighting a battle on your own when you're supposed to be fighting in a great company. And so we need to ask him, keep us from hard testing. Testing and temptation, apparently the same word there. So he's not just saying, you know, because God's not going to lead you into, oh, let's see if he'll sin if I dangle this in front of him. That's not the way it works. There's testing that comes into life. If you play on a football team, the coach doesn't say, here's a ball. You don't have to come to practice. Just come, show back up on Friday night and see how you can do. No, you got to work, 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 work. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. He's trying to develop spiritual muscles in us, and he does it by testing. He does it by saying, okay, we're going to put some strain on now. We're not going to lift five pounds anymore. We're going to lift 10 and 15. And we never like it. But the Bible says, after we've come through it in trust, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It turns out to be a good thing, just like any testing from a loving father in your own life. It turned out to be a good thing. So he's saying, don't let us be put in a test. Don't let me collapse during the test. Don't let me collapse. Just please watch over how that goes. You know how weak I am. And apparently that's a very appropriate prayer. And keep us from the evil one. We don't have the strength to stand against the evil one. I've got to tell you, I used to be kind of afraid of the devil, like... I don't know what it was, but 
I'm respectful of the devil because I know he is extremely powerful, more powerful, more wise. You know, most of us, for most of us, this fight against the devil is going to happen right up here. And it mostly happens when we forget those three things. Okay? So he's saying, keep that one from me. Keep him from dominating me. And the way you do that, I believe, personally, is you stay in God's word so you keep remembering those three things. You get out of God's word, you're going to be... And you stay around God's people in God's word. That's huge. So he prays those three things, which naturally just walk out. These are the things I'm going to need to do the other things. And then the last part seems to be so important, he reiterates it. If you forgive the wrongs other people have done to you, then your father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, then your father won't forgive you your wrongs. Again, that's not a salvation verse. That's not talking about you're going to lose your salvation. That's going to say, it's a family deal. That's why we pray our father and not my father. It's a family deal. He expects us to do it as a family. Jesus even says at some point, if you've got some hard feeling with somebody and you come to Sunday to worship or Saturday to worship, as it was in his case, wait, stop, hold on, go, go talk to that person, get it straight. And you know, the other person doesn't even have to respond because this says it's all on your side. You just forgive. You just set it aside. You know, so if I owe Brett 20 bucks, Brett says, nah, I'm tearing up this IOU. I wouldn't ever owe Brett. I don't know. I just wouldn't. But if Brett says, hey, I'm just going to tear this up, well, it's forgiven, okay? It's forgiven. So that's the idea. Somebody owes you something, you tear that little piece of paper up that I owe you, and it's done. It's gone. And every time it comes up again in your mind, you say, no, it's gone. I remember that day in October in 2017. As hard as it was, I let it go. It's another really great Tony Evans. He says it's like a clanging bell. At first it clangs real loud, and then you stop pulling the rope, and then slowly the clanging stops, and eventually it won't clang anymore, and you won't keep remembering how much you hated that person for doing it. But you've got to start by st stop pulling the bell so the bell stops ringing. Stop hating them. Does that make sense? It's got to happen. So what I hope will happen as a result of this is we'll honor Christ more, we'll want to pray to him more, it strikes me uh, this time, which I had not really thought of before. This is the unique person of the universe. There's only one person who could explain it this way. Because there's only one person in the universe who has prayed to God and been prayed to as God. Jesus knows this on both sides of the equation. Isn't that amazing? And when they say, teach us to pray... Uh, parallel passage in Luke 11. This is what he tells them. It's pretty amazing. Well, let's do pray. And at the end, when we come back together, we're going to recite this, but slowly. Okay. Heavenly Father, I, again, I pray I haven't over-talked. I pray that the things that you want to come to this in our lives would come to fruit, uh, that we would bear good fruit, that people would see the light of our lives, and they'd say, gosh, I want that. Whatever that person's got with Christ, that's what I want. And so we pray that would be the result of this prayer, but I also pray that we would be absolutely pleasing to you in all that we pray, Father, because we pray through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.